My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Makinor, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us to a place where we can quiet our minds and our hearts and uh, look to your words for instruction. Lord, we openly reveal that we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to explain the words to us. Um, so often we read the text with our eyes, but our mind is, uh, is closed to the understanding. We don't really know what the text is saying. We can't know how to interact with it. Uh, we don't know how to properly apply it. And that's why we are so dependent upon your very spirit um, to uh, explain it to us and to reveal the words and to reveal the Messiah to us. Um, Lord, we want to be ambassadors for your kingdom, and we want to um, be doers of the word, not just hearers only. So um, help us to um, have that mindset as we're approaching the word of God. Continue to um, help me to um, be uh, faithful, to do the hard work, to press in during the week and study and uh, avail myself of all the resources that you've given to me as a Bible teacher, as a Torah teacher. I'm so thankful uh, to be able to reach out to people across the miles around the world through this medium of the internet, uh, of the uh, podcasts and the um, emails and the YouTube comments and all of these other uh, social interactions that um, I'm engaged in on a week-by-week basis. It's a blessing. It's a challenge. Um, but Lord, the, the, um, the, the payoff is it couldn't be higher, Lord, um, to, to be able to share the very words of God with people. So uh, thank you for this. Uh, continue to raise us up and continue to heal us and continue to um, give us a voice uh, in this very crazy, crazy world that we live in. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining me week after week for these live internet studies. This is the uh, first 30-minute segment of an hour-long study for these live internet studies. My name is Arlben Lyman Hanavi. This first 30-minute segment is entitled Judaism v. Christianity. That's the short working title. Uh, the longer title, Are Judaism and Christianity Incompatible with One Another? It's basically a study about replacement theology versus, well, what's the opposite of replacement theology? Um, so we, we're looking at a primary text from Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. But as uh, of late, I've been reading the Luke version that you can see on your screen. Let me read it one more time, and then we'll interact with the notes that I have put together. Luke chapter uh, 5, starting at verse 33, this is a story about Yeshua, his disciples, and as we're going to see, there's some questions about his practices, and it's his response in the form of a parable Right, these parts of the parable that give rise to this discussion about replacement theology, because um, uh, as you were going to find out, there are elements in the parable that seem to indicate that the old is being replaced by the new, and the um, Gentile Christian Church of history couldn't resist taking that opportunity to insert their theology of um, Judaism is out, Christianity's in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So let's read the passage and then we'll jump into my notes. Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 33. Um, and they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Verse 34 And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Verse 35 The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Verse 36, he also told them a parable. And again, um, this story is found in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It doesn't show up in John. And it's only here in Luke that the word parable is mentioned. So 
um, let's treat it like a parable. At least the 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 um, stories after the answer about the the wedding fast that part is factual. But then everything from thirty six following is a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. That's one part. And then verse thirty seven. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. That's a second part. Verse 38, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. That's the conclusion to the second part. And then only Luke contains this final third part to the parable in verse 39. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And that's the end of the parables. Matthew and Mark don't contain that final verse where he talks about drinking old wine and desiring the new because the old, I'm sorry, desiring the old versus the new because the old is better or the old is good. All right, let's briefly um, just look over some of the details in the text and then uh, provide some commentary. As we've been um, uh, uh, noticing already, um, if you read the uh, story, the section at face value, there seems to be a lot of just common sense um, uh, advice uh, built right into the story. Um, the factual part where Yeshua starts about answering the question about the bridegroom and fasting and, and wedding guests and things like that, he follows up that question or that answer with these three parables, or two if you're reading the Matthew and Mark um, rendering. It really, it all kind of works out to just two parables, one part about the garment and the other part about the wine and the wineskins. It's, it's really a parable about those two parts. It's just Luke adds this final clause, which is uh, interesting in, its, in and of itself. And so what we're, turning, what we're ascertaining is that the, the story itself, the parables aren't really given interpretation. And as I was dialoguing with my good Bible study buddy friend who's actually in the live class right now, he and I were dialoguing after the show last week. And he was reminding me that um, it's really a, a, a wonderment. Is that a real word? Wonderment? It's an amazement. It's an amazing thing that Christians are even, are even having dialogues about the allegory because really there's nothing that forces us to allegorize the passage. We could just stop at the face value, um, you know, practical common sense aspect of Yeshua's answer and its parables and just walk away with the idea that people are going to do the right thing when they're presented with a choice. Um, why are your disciples um, eating and drinking and not fasting? Well, common sense answer, it's a wedding. Why would you fast at a wedding, right? It's a time of rejoicing. It's kind of a common sense answer. It's kind of a duh answer in that sense. And then the parables only really just support the common sense aspect, right? You got to piece of cloth, you got a garment, you want to patch it, you use common sense when putting those two pieces together. Same thing with wine and wineskins. You have elements, you know, new wine and old wineskins, and you're going to have to use wisdom and common sense when you're introducing those two elements to one another. And also the last piece in Luke, drinking old wine, drinking new wine, which one is better? Common sense tells you the old wine is better because it's already aged. So we've looked at the allegorical aspect of these um, parables, and we've really determined that Christianity really didn't have any need to insert the replacement theology parable, uh, the replacement theology allegory, where the old is out, the new is in, the old is incompatible with the new, the new is incompatible with the old, and then supplying 
their own meanings to the parables with the allegorical um, application of Judaism is the old way and Christianity is the new way. Israel is the old people. The Gentile church is the new people. The law of Moses is the old law. The law of Christ is the new law. The Tanakh, the Old Testament, is the old part of God's uh, promises and dealings with people. The New Testament is the new way of God dealing with people, etc., etc. So the whole replacement theology package in itself is bad news for Israel and good news for the body of Messiah or Christianity, etc., etc. And I say bad news uh, for, uh, I'm sorry, I say bad news for Israel because what religious Jew living in any day or age, not alone, let alone just Yeshua's age, but our age as well, what religious Jew would welcome an explanation to Yeshua's teachings that equated to uh, a, a replacement of his own people group, his own religious way of life, <clears throat> his own um, value system, things like that. What we've ter- we're terming this section old man, new man, and messianic Judaism. And what I can determine is that a better way to re- read through this passage, if we're going to go with the allegory, is to understand when Yeshua's challenging old versus new, you know, and he's using these elements in the parable, that he's not talking about old belief systems and new belief systems. He's re- and, and yes, there are some elements to that uh, because we all have our own belief systems that aren't in line with God's word. But what he's really talking about is challenging the old way of thinking when it comes to um, uh, what's valuable to God if it didn't start with God's values to begin with. Case in point, we all have our own traditions and uh, religious um, uh, uh, rules that we attach to God's word. And so uh, in our old way of thinking, we think that this is what's more important. And so if that clouds God's word, then yes, that has to go and and Yeshua has to bring in reform. So let's, um, oh, by the way, one last thing. In verse 39 of Luke, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. I said that last week that I would show you in different versions that some um, texts read the good is better. Let me open up Luke here. Luke chapter 5, verse 39, and you can see I've got parallel um, uh, versions pulled up uh, for you on the screen. Let me shrink that just a little bit. There we go. Um, so we've got the new international version. No one after drinking um, old wine wants new for they say the old is better. Notice it doesn't say the old is good. It says the old is better. The NLT translation. Um, the old is just fine, they say. Uh, the ESV we already read. The old is good. Uh, the Berean study Bible. The old is better. The literal Bible, Berean literal, same thing. The old is better. KJV, the old is better. Um, New KJV, same thing. Old is better. NASB, old is fine. Um, The point I'm bringing up is, and let me just use just these two to demonstrate what I'm trying to um, get at. Between the KJV and the NASB, they are kind of representatives of two uh, two different schools of manuscript families, what I call the A and the B, uh, the Alexandrinus and the, the Vaticanus or the B of the majority texts and things like that. So we have two kind of, they're not really competing with one another. They just represent two different um, points in history when we we as humans found uh, of the ancient texts and begin to um, interpret them and things like that. Uh, one is a little older, but but closer to the source 
where they were written one is a little bit newer but farther away or something like that i'll put something on the screen in post-production that shows the primary differences but what we end up with is a one word difference in the very end of the verse one of the verses one of the textual families has the greek equivalent of the, the english word better that's the kjv family and all the other bible translations that follow that um majority uh, textus receptus um a majority text uh family which i think is the what i'm calling the the b version um and then the nasb that you can see on your screen follows the um the, the alexandrinus if i remember family uh and it has a different one word difference it says the old is um fine or the old is good uh so uh that's why you have a difference like kjv says um the old is better but esv says the old is good you know not a huge theological difference between the word good and better i'm just trying to show it to you just so you know why i keep saying sometimes the old is good or the old is better but here's here's where um it gains some traction and importance for our uh, study if indeed yeshua is teaching some form of of old is out new is in and it's and it refers to religious uh belief systems or ways in which to approach god where we don't have to keep the old testament anymore we now just keep the new testament the old way of approaching god by keeping the commandments is out and the new way of approaching god is um by faith in jesus and that's what's in if that is true which is what christianity has brought to the table of discussion which is why i'm bringing it up by the way uh, answer to my um study buddy friend who asked me that last week I think he already knows the answer, but I'm just reinforcing it for people who weren't there while we had this dialogue. Why do I even bring it up? Why am I even bringing up the replacement theology and the allegory um, issue in the first place when Jesus doesn't give us really any allegory? He gives us a parable, and he doesn't give us an explanation, an interpretation. Why am I bringing it up? Because Christianity has supplied the allegory down through the ages. It's nearly 1,900 years old. This allegory goes way back. I mean, it goes way back. Um, pick up nearly every Christian, modern Christian commentary, and they all have the same kind of viewpoint on, this, um, on their allegory, that the old is out, the new is in, Judaism's out, Christianity's in. But if that's the case, then Yeshua's final statement in verse 39, which Luke is the single exclusive that renders it, if that's the case, then no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Sounds like that um, doesn't fit with their theology. If, in fact, the old represents Judaism and the new represents Christianity, well, then why does Yeshua make it a point to highlight that after experiencing Judaism's wine, no one desires Christianity's wine? Why? Because Judaism is, and then here's where you can fill in the blank with whatever manuscript family you prefer, because Judaism is good, or judaism is better right all right that's why i made it a point to highlight that okay let's now turn to my own commentary again uh we read this last week but i'm going to read reread this part because i kind of hurt i felt like i hurried through it and i shouldn't have really even took a bite out of it but i did let me reread this uh, passage we just got through studying david stern who's a messianic jew we read his commentary on this section on this passage we came to find out that he disagrees with standard christian replacement theological allegorical interpretations of this passage ha 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 no brainer right no of course david stern is a messianic jew and he's going to be a he's going to champion what i'm what um my uh, good friend caleb Hag over at um tor resource uh, uh institute calls uh tim by the way t caleb Hag is tim Hag's um son and um caleb Hag and i are good friends and um well tim and i are good friends as well but caleb and i have a a, a more uh 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 
fluid relationship, we were able to dialogue more because Tim's always too busy to chat with me, but Caleb's always got time. And uh, Caleb is uh, fond of this term pronomian, pronomian. The word nomian refers to law, right? As in um, namos in the Greek. And so um, pronomian simply means your pro Torah or your, if you're, if you're hearing my um, you, uh, uh, podcast or YouTube video you're watching and you never heard this term pronomian, N-O-M-I-A-N, pronomian, pro, P-R-O, then it's a way of describing you if you're part of the either the Hebraic Roots movement or the um, uh, Messianic Jewish movement and you're in favor of Christians keeping Torah. Pronomian is a term that uh, describes what you believe in because you do believe that the Bible's uh, uh, the Torah is still relevant. The opposite would be antinomian or a non-nomian, something like that. Um, you're not really against Torah, but you're not in favor of keeping it. Nonomian or antinomian, something like that. But pronomian is um, what uh, uh, Caleb had used. In fact, I think he has a website called pronomian.com. So David Stern is pronomian. That's why I bring up that term. David Stern is pro-Torah. He's pronomian. I am too. So let's read his uh, thoughts, or let's read my uh, concluding thoughts <clears throat> to David Stern's thoughts. Here's my what I say. Do you see how much better David Stern's view fits with the overall historic message of both Tanakh and apostolic scriptures than do the views of the previously examined mainline Christian position on these verses. And what I show, uh, what I showcased by bringing in Stern's commentary was that um, another way of viewing this section where Yeshua introduces these old and new elements is to simply understand that Yeshua is talking about reforming the old, but keeping it. So you're not throwing out the baby when you throw out the bathwater. You're instead realizing that you can um, work with the existing system uh, as long as you bring reform to the man, to the people, and you return to the basic elements that God instituted when he, we're talking about Judaism and the, and the laws of Moses and things like that. It's really what we're talking about is a return to the law of Moses and ripping out the error of, um, of a rabbinic tradition and halakha that clouds uh, the true meaning of God's word. So we're talking about um, discarding uh, copious amounts of oral Torah, but we're in favor of retaining all of God's written Torah as is applicable to us. So that's what David Stern is proposing is he's saying, hey, we can still have a Messianic Judaism, but we just need to clean it up a little bit. So I continue. Yeshua's words were not said in a vacuum, right? We have to remind ourselves about that. They were presented to a group of first century Jewish people following the Torah that was given to the nation of Israel over a thousand years earlier. I have to remind Christians about this because we're too often so quick to insert our own allegorical interpretation to Yeshua's words as if Yeshua came to rip apart Judaism, throw it under the bus, mothball that program, shelve it back, put it on back burner status, right? Put it in that giant warehouse where the Ark of the Covenant sits, like we saw in Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Um, you know, throw it into a crate and box it up. That's where Judaism and the law of Moses belong in the mind of many, 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 many Christians. And even unknowingly so, many Christians hold that view without, without ill will towards those who want to follow the Torah. That's just, they're kind of their default knee-jerk 
reaction to reading Yeshua's words. It's, it's the narrative, like the word I've been using. It's the narrative that's been given to them um, uh, year after year, century after century, decade after decade, it's century after century in, in, in historic Christianity. So Christians aren't really taught to think any way, any other way. But I'm here to, I'm not here to throw all of their thinking under the bus. Don't, don't think that's what I'm here to do. I'm just simply here to um, sharpen our um, understanding of God's Word by bringing us back to a better historical, grammatical way of interpreting the Bible and understanding that Jesus could not have gotten away with just throwing the law of Moses and Judaism out. It just wouldn't have worked, right? Uh, wouldn't have worked. Wouldn't have worked. All right, so I go on to say, this means if one leaps past the context of the first century and immediately begins to inadvertently apply Yeshua's parable to 21st century false religions like um, uh, David uh, Guzik or um, John MacArthur did. I think John MacArthur was the one who really applied this to false religions. If we just jump past the first century and jump straight into 21st century applications or modern applications, then what I say is that one will necessarily miss the main point of the master's words in favor of one's own pretext, writes the old maxim. A, a text without context is pretext. What is pretext? It's bringing your own idea to the discussion without um, thought of what was there to begin with. I said it this way last week. If you're reading through your Bible and you're um, going to start asking questions of the text, the first questions you want to start asking are, what did the, this text mean to the original writers and the readers? the people who were interacting with the dialogue that was taking place, right? That's the first questions you want to start asking yourself. Those are some of the first questions. What you want to avoid asking is, what does this text mean to me, right? You can hear my voice, how I changed the, my voice to make it sound a little funny, is because we're, I, as well-meaning as that question is, what does this text mean to me, it too often ignores what did it mean to the first recipients of the text. And in this way, sometimes we, we, we lose the, uh, the context. Uh, I say in my uh, commentary, context is king. And context demands that the parable be applied to the immediate listeners and the readers first before making secondary and tertiary, that is third and, and others, applications for others. So um, you can ask questions, what does this text mean to you eventually? But do yourself a favor, do the text a favor, ask questions of the text first, do a little bit of a history digging, a little bit of grammar digging, background context. Use the what um, I've heard one uh, Bible teacher called the 2020 principle when you're reading the Bible. You've, you read a verse and you don't know what it means. The, 20 print, the 2020 principle is this. Go up 20 verses before the verse that you're reading and read 20 verses after the verse you're reading, and that'll give you a context. That's what he, that they mean by the 2020 principle. You encounter a verse, you're not sure what it means, read 20 verses earlier, then read 20 verses after. That'll at least give you some context. All right, so that's um, always good, good advice. I go on to say, yes, false religions are incompatible with the true religion of Yeshua as Lord and King. So to that applicability, I, I applaud that if that's what a Christian pastor is going to teach in a sermon or um, on his Bible study blog or whatever, I, I agree with that. Yes, we applaud that. We, we, I don't want to tear down those, those um, applications, all right? Those are good. But I say that is not even the central point of the parable, as we're going to find out in Heg's comments below that I am going to jump into tonight. I go on to say, um, 
Therefore, any later Christian application that opts for an interpretation that teaches the destruction of Judaism in favor of the establishment of Christianity actually destroys the intended meaning of Yeshua's parable and even ends up presenting, uh, and this is where we've been uh, parking a lot of my uh, commentary, it ends up presenting a form of replacement theology to unsuspecting Christians. And the reason I think that's the case, that it destroys the intended meaning, is because Yeshua earlier on in Matthew uh, made it a very uh, uh, important point to highlight that he didn't come to do away with the law of Moses. Over and over in Yeshua's teachings, he stressed the importance of the fact that he came to be obedient to his Father's words and to to, um, do the Father's will and to um, uh, 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 show the righteousness that God was uh, expecting of, of God's people all along. <clears throat> and so, if we present an interpretation that has Yeshua discarding the law of Moses in favor of his own supposed law, right, law of Christ, or um, uh, leaving the people of Israel behind in favor of adopting a new people group known as the Gentilized Christian Church or something to that effect, then we end up turning Yeshua's whole purpose for dialoguing with Jewish people and bringing them into the discussion, we turn that on its head. Yeshua came to um, reform Israel, but he came to redeem her, to bring her back, to bring her, um, to return her to uh, the uh, um, uh, obedient um, child that she was supposed to be, that God called her to be. So let's read some more of my own uh, comments here. I go on to say, to be sure, when we examine the Tanakh, that's the Old Testament, when we examine it more closely, we do not find promises of a, quote, death of Judaism, end quote, due to some supposed incompatibility of Jewish lifestyle with the promised Messiah to come. This whole idea that when we're reading through our New Testament Bibles that Jesus or Paul are bringing a new way of approaching God, the old way was not good enough. Right, as if keeping God's laws was somehow deficient. That's that whole mindset is approaching the scriptures from a wrong-headed notion to begin with. If we would rather instead approach the New Testament scriptures with the idea that they are in full support of God's standards as already laid out for us in the older part of our Bibles, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, we're going to have a better time understanding Paul's difficult words and Yeshua's difficult parables that he's that he's giving to people all right that's just just that's the way i'm going to recommend that you read your bibles let's keep reading instead i say what we find is god's indictment against sinful man not indictment against uh the law of moses right yes we've talked about this in the past the law of moses has its limitations but they're built-in limitations they're set their limits that are set there by god they're not deficiencies on God's part as if Jesus had to come and kind of clean up his father's mess right like like God the father so, you know somehow gave this shoddy version of um righteous standards definitions of sin and holiness etc cetera, etc cetera, represented by the law of Moses and it was all shot full of holes and it was poorly represented and Jesus the son had to come and clean up daddy's mess um, Papa's mess, you know, the mess that God made by giving the law of Moses, Jesus came to wipe that slate clean, pull out this giant eraser, you know, clean off the whiteboard, 
and then start rewriting this new set of standards known as the law of Christ, which turns into the New Testament or something like that. That's not really a good way to interpret your Bible, people. So, instead, what we find is God's indictment against sinful man and his fallen nature and how only the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, can soften the heart to receive the Messiah as Lord. Thus, ready for this, what will happen when we do it God's way is it brings about a genuine transformation of a man and a reformation of his ways, which, in the context of the first century Judaism's, would mean a reformation of their Jewish way of thinking. So the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day and Paul's day as well had clouded the true meaning of God's words. They had taken Yeshua's father's Torah and they had perverted it into something it was never intended to be. There was all these built-up traditions, man-made explanations, what we call the religious halakha, um, all of the oral traditions that were anti-Gentile um, and things like that and, and um, misogynist, right? Uh, they were very, like, looked down on women and anyone who was not a, a male Jew. And so there was just a lot of baggage that had been built up, fences upon fences upon fences upon traditions, upon prohibitions, upon um, requirements, upon minutia, upon, right? You get the idea. There was just so much um callousness that had been built up around the torah the, the the written word of god that your average bible student in the first century your average religious jew your average uh israelite is what i'm trying to say they didn't even really know how where to begin right they were just lost uh you know they would read something in the torah they'd hear it taught in the synagogues and they'd hear you know 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 rabbis give their explanations and they just left the, they left the synagogue more confused than they were to begin with so it's no wonder. Jesus came to cut through all of that. He came to return the people back to the pure form of worshiping God and approaching God the way God had laid out in the law of Moses. The law of Moses is, is a perfect standard from God's perspective. It had no deficiencies. It has limitations, right? And it requires faith in Messiah and genuine faith in God and love for your neighbor to understand and interact with God's words. But in its in its um uh application in its um delivery to mankind um the torah is uh fine it's perfect doesn't have any any deficiencies all right i didn't really jump into the next section i just finished out the final paragraph that we had uh, started last week next week we'll pick up my commentary right where you're reading on my website right now the, the which you can see on your screen a better way to understand this passage and uh, we'll interact with Tim Haig's uh, words. But for now, that'll do it for Judaism be Christianity. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and I am a Torah teacher at a real-life congregation in Colorado, the Harvest Congregation, otherwise known as Keilat Tunuah, the Harvest. You can join us online at www.graftedin.com, or uh, you can visit us in person week after week and join us for our Sabbath services. But if you're still uncomfortable getting out, be sure to um, go to our website at graftedin.com and uh, see the link on my screen right now. Um, the uh, the image on my screen right now it points to the YouTube videos that are uploaded to YouTube in case you'd like to just simply watch your uh, Messianic service online. Uh, please feel free to do so that way.
Speaking of online resources, why not find me online at www.tetzetorah.com. It's my own personal Torah teaching website that's spelled T-E-T-Z-E. T-O-R-A-H dot com, TateSayTorah.com, where I park most of my uh, written commentaries. Um, you can see the cluster there right now on the homepage. That represents basically the core of um, most of my written commentaries. It's not the exhaustive list there. If you click each uh, section, you'll find that there's other um, um, commentaries that are available. But feel free to browse around, bookmark the page. I try to update uh, things as often as I can. Um, but if not, be sure to visit my YouTube channel. That's right, I've got a YouTube channel. You can find me on YouTube's um, platform at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries, all one word spelled out there. And as you can see from my uh, image there, I update my channel daily. Typically, I'm uploading videos once a day, twice a day, something like that. So I'm quite busy. So be sure to do take one of the actions that you see dancing on your screen right now to subscribe, hit the um, bell for notifications, um, share the content with your friends and family members, leave comments um, and things like that. That way you'll always be in the loop whenever uh, something new is happening on my YouTube channel. These live internet studies are brought to you week after week. And if you'd like to join us week after week, which again, you're certainly invited to, you're going to need to get access to Skype somehow. And the blue Skype button that you can see on my screen right now, which is available on my um, Tate Tate's Tour website. If you were to click that anytime during the live studies, it'll open up Skype right in your browser, especially if you're using either a desktop or a laptop computer. But again, the important details, we meet Saturday afternoons from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. And that's the central daylight time. It's taught via Skype. And um, there's no... Um, uh, other software really needed unless you're um, using maybe a smart device or a smartphone then you might need some other software but if not be sure to while you're on my website scroll all the way to the very very bottom and to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and prayerfully consider partnering with me to help me continue to bring these Torah teachings to you free of charge. And the way you can do that is you can give to my ministry and the little yellow donate button there is where you can um, send your uh, donations in. I appreciate your generosity and your prayers. And um, as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're talking about who or what is the Holy Spirit. We left off in this section where we're looking at these verses that, as they apply to the Holy Spirit. We uh, A few weeks back, uh, we looked at the Holy Spirit is called God in the book of Acts. We looked at the Holy Spirit is called Creator. He's recognized as Creator in the book of Job. The Holy Spirit resurrects in the book of Romans. Right? He resurrected Yeshua. He brought him back from the dead. The Holy Spirit indwells us in the book of John. The Holy Spirit is everywhere in the book of Psalms. The Holy Spirit is all-knowing in 1 Corinthians. And then we left off, I believe, with the Holy Spirit sanctifies in 1 Peter. We're not really looking at right now this um, chart that was supplied by Karm. Instead, what we're doing is we're finishing up this um, commentary by a Christian author, a Trinitarian author, uh, Roberto Pereira, I believe I'm saying his name correctly there. Sounds kind of a Spanish uh, background to me. And um, he's talking about looking at the Spirit through Paul's writings. And so we're now in this section called Father, Son, and Spirit, Three Distinct Persons. So let me just pick up our reading right here. This writer says, 
For Paul, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct beings or persons. And let me just come to a full stop for a moment. In dialoguing with many non-Trinitarian folks, like I do through my YouTube comments on a regular weekly basis, this would be interaction with either Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. Mormons, um, uh, Unitarian Christians, Christadelphian Christians, Iglesia Ni Cristo Christians, um, Oneness Pentecostal Christians, um, um, I think Worldwide Church of God, I think this falls into that camp. I'm just like rattling off uh, uh, off the top of my head, but I'll put a little list on the screen in post-production that you can see kind of a more lengthy list of non-Trinitarian Christian groups that are out there. Well, I'm dialoguing with a, a, a sort of a representative of a taste smattering of those uh, through my YouTube com- comments. And I have to remind them over and over again that the way in which God is one is not the same way in which God is three. And that's why um, we have to remember that God is one what and three who's, like Dr. James White is fond of saying. He's one being known as God. That's the ontological argument for explaining God. He's one what? He's one being that we could apply the generic label God or Elohim to. Or even we could use the term Yahweh, the, the Tetragrammaton name can apply across the, 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 the being known as God. But when we're talking about persons that are distinct in personality and distinct in, in roles and functions, we're dipping into the category known as economic trinity. So I'll flash something on the screen for you guys to see. Um, ontological trinity is one way of interacting with God's identity. That deals with who he is at the essential nature level, right? His essence, um, his nature, his divinity, things like that. The, the Greek terms uh, homoousian and, um, uh, uh, you know, um, perichoresis and things like that these are all these are all applicable to the uh ontological argument that's the ontological trinity but at the same time when we're reading through the bible we interact and we deal with god's interactions among mankind what we call how god is involved in salvation history and for that we're going to read about things that god does roles that god plays functions that god um does on planet Earth and in the universe, and that those discussions are going to take the form of what we call economic trinity, the economies of God, and so that's where the three persons comes into view. So don't get confused. The way in which God is one is not the same way in which God is three. He's one what? He's one being, but he's three persons, and those three persons share the same essence. That's how we understand God. So it's common to agree this author says, with the idea that the Father and the Son are different persons. However, some theologians wonder if the Spirit is really a third person related with the Father and the Son, or if he is only an impersonal power or force operating in association with God or even emanating from him. We bring this discussion up because um, the kind of the somewhat default Unitarian Christian perspective is that if you just read through the Bible, starting with the Old Testament and working your way towards the New, the um, majority of verses are going to um, display and demonstrate that God and the Spirit are the same being. They're the same person, if you want to use the word person, in a Unitarian context. And so it's not necessary to imagine that there's this third person of the Trinity in Unitarian way of thinking, because over and over in thousands of texts throughout the Old Testament, and a good number of them in the New the Spirit of God is simply another way of saying God himself, or describing God's power as he interacts with mankind, describing God's 
uh, gracious interaction with mankind, right? The way that we could say it's God's um, emanation, the emanation of God, right? The way God um, um, uh, touches man through his spirit. God is enthroned in heaven. He's what we say last week. You have to remember this. Uh, the tension that's created by the fact that God is transcendent on one hand and imminent on the other hand. I'll put a little of a graphic on the screen to describe this as well. Transcendence, when we're talking about God, describes the fact that he's beyond our capacity to understand and reach or interact with. He's far away from us because of his um, absolute holiness and his, his, his um, mystery, right? Uh, his, the fact that he is very God and we are frail humans. He's transcendent. We can't fully understand him. But at the same time, when God comes close to us and interacts with us through human um, history and uh, humanity's salvation, then he becomes imminent to us. He becomes um, approachable and touchable and graspable. Graspable? We can, we can, we can, we can see him and, and hear him and, and, and interact with him, right? He's, he's, he's up close and personal. That's what I mean by imminent. We hold those two truths about God in tension. When we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the Unitarian default position is that God's Spirit is just another way to allow God to interact with us uh, on this eminent level, on this personal level. Because of His transcendence, He sends His Spirit to us, or uh, the oneness Pentecostal was telling me that it's the Spirit of Jesus rather than the Spirit of God. But um, the Spirit of Jesus comes and interacts with us, and on that level, then we can uh, know God and have fellowship with Him and things like that. The Holy Spirit's identity in the scriptures has always been a, a, a kind of a hard one to put your finger on. I mentioned last week that he's almost the exact opposite, flip, uh, polar opposite of Yeshua. Yeshua in the scriptures is meant to be the front man of God's operation, of the Godhead, of the trio, of the three, right? If they were like a group, like the Beatles or something like that. Um, Yeshua is the front man. He's that one that, that we recognize right away up front. He's the one that, that uh, gets all the press. And God designed it that way. God is the Father. He's the source. He's the Arche in the Greek. But he's this kind of invisible, behind-the-scenes producer type of uh, figure in the Godhead. Right? He's not right up front. He puts Yeshua out front for everyone to see, for, for us, for we humans to interact with. The Holy Spirit takes this, and I'm dialoguing currently with a, a few uh, non-Trinitarians over this topic right now. The Holy Spirit takes this somewhat subservient role both to the Father and to the Son. So we have to recognize, going back to this ontological view of the Trinity and the economic view of the Trinity again, in the ontological version of the Trinity, or view of the Trinity, all of the, 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 the understanding of God as a being, all the three persons are equal in power, in essence, in glory, in deity, divinity, etc., etc., right? There's no... Um, um, deficiency from one person to the third person. They all have share the same equal uh, power and essence. They have the same. It's one God, but shared uh, divinity and essence and power across the, the Godhead, across the Trinity um, that we're talking about. But when we flip over to the economic model of Trinity, which is not in opposition to uh, ontological, it just complements it, then we begin to realize the hierarchy and the, the roles and functions. We realize that God is the one who sends Yeshua. The, the Son proceeds, I'm sorry, the Son be, is begotten eternally from the Father, right? The Son um, uh, 
is eternally begotten. That's how the creeds uh, uh, describe it. So the so the Father sends the Son, and it's always that way in Scripture. You're not going to find the Son sending the Father. That that doesn't work. Economic Trinity describes the Father as the one who's in the highest position of authority, who sends the Son as his shaliach, as his agent, to do his bidding, to do his will. Um, that's why Yeshua constantly referred back to, I'm, I'm here to do my Father's will. I'm, I'm not here to challenge my Father. I'm here to do his will. I'm here to, to, to follow his bidding and to, to, um, uh, you know, to highlight his program and to do whatever he asks me to do. Um, but the Holy Spirit uh, according to Yeshua, when you get to John chapters 14 through 16, um, in his, his upper room discourse, high, court, high priestly prayer, then we begin to realize that the Holy Spirit has been sent on a mission to um, reveal the words of the Messiah, to bring the words of the Master to remembrance. So in this role, the Holy Spirit plays this subservient role to both the Father and the Son. We could say he eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. We never have the Holy Spirit bossing the Father around. We never have the Holy Spirit bossing Yeshua around. Instead, we have Yeshua giving, his, uh, giving the Holy Spirit his marching orders, as it were. This lets us know that the Holy Spirit is not merely another way of describing God. Because we don't have, we don't have Jesus the Son bossing the Father around, giving the Father his marching orders. As if... The Father is taking his, his orders from Jesus. That doesn't work in Scripture. Economic Trinity doesn't allow that. We don't find those verses where the Son is giving the Father um, jobs and duties and functions and roles to do. It's, it's the opposite. The Father sends the Son. The Son is the agency of the Father. The Son is the shaliach, the sent one. The apostle, the prophet, sent by the Father. It doesn't work the other way around. So if the Holy Spirit, like my Unitarian brothers and sisters try to tell me, is actually just the Father in disguise, if the Holy Spirit is really just another way of saying God, then we have a problem because Jesus orders the Holy Spirit to go forth and to, to do certain things, to do, you know, God, Jesus says the Holy Spirit, the, the, you know, the parakletos in the Greek, the paraclete in the English, I'm going to send him from the Father. He comes from the Father, but I'm going to send him to you. How is it that Jesus is sending the Father if the Father is just the Spirit, if the Spirit is just the Father? So, understand that? So, the Spirit takes his backseat role. He doesn't speak on his own authority. I'll talk about that verse a little later on. Not tonight, but maybe in time. There's a verse where Yeshua talks about uh, I think it's like John 16, 13 or something like that. When I send the Holy Spirit, he's not going to speak of his own authority. He's not going to speak on his, on his own. Uh, he's not going to do his own will. Well, if he's God the Father in disguise or just another name for God, why wouldn't he do his own will? Why wouldn't he have his own authority? You know, Jesus yields to the authority of the Father. You guys need to rethink that verse. This helps us understand that it's better to understand the paraclete as the Holy Spirit. And the fact that he doesn't speak of his own authority doesn't mean he's not God. Rather, Yeshua is simply trying to say that he's playing this economic subservient role um, uh, to me and the Father. He's doing what the Father is telling, us, telling him to do. He's doing what I'm telling him to do in this economic role. That's why I said he's kind of the polar opposite of Jesus in the, in the economic sense. Let's continue with this author. Paul represents the Spirit as being related with the power of God, which I agree. That's a, that's a very Unitarian um, uh, friendly statement, uh, the power of God in the book of Romans and in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Timothy. I'm in, in agreement with that. Again, 
uh, Trinitarian, non-Trinitarian um, viewers to my YouTube uh, videos are fond of reminding me, I said last week's schooling, and somebody uh, took issue with the, with the tone that it sounded like I was implying when i said schooling this is by the way this is a this is an in-house friendly dialogue between me and my my non-trinitarian um uh readers and viewers um so i i don't think they're offended when i say um schooled and i'm certainly not uh implying offense um it's just a friendly dialogue over uh uh, uh topics of trinity discussions on the issues of trinity and things like that but they're fond of reminding me that the holy spirit is simply the power of god I'm fond of reminding them that this is true to a degree if you only read a certain part of the Bible. If you only read um, half the Bible, or as James White is fond of saying, if you, if you read the Bible with one eye closed, um, you've got to read the Bible from both sides of the revelation that God has given to us, meaning both Old and New Testaments. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not merely just the power of God, but he is the power of God. But never, this author says, as an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is not impersonal like the Jehovah's Witnesses want to teach or like some unitarian christians would like me to believe that god is not uh personal in his spirit he's impersonal that would push god out to the ver limit of being um transcendent always and never able to approach us closely i disagree with that this author also concurs the spirit not only represents the power of god but also his wisdom in first corinthians and in ephesians chapter one let's keep reading uh, how am i doing on time wow i've got lots of time okay this author says, let us follow how Paul represents the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in triune activity, although being distinct beings, when he explains to the Ephesians about the revelation of the mystery of Christ. Here we have a quote uh, from Paul. Um, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, right? It was which was, and then he um, the ellipses indicate that this author skipping some uh, wording, and then he picks up Paul's thoughts again, which was not made known to men in other generations, as has now been made, as has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. He continues from the book of Ephesians chapter three. These are familiar words. The mystery, or this mystery, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. End quote. Now, these are Paul's words as I'm interacting uh, with this author's uh, quote from Paul. And the point that we're seeing here is that when we encounter this word mystery in English or mysterion in the Greek, this is not a mystery that, that represents a truth that, was, that didn't exist and now God is suddenly revealing it to us, right? Like, uh, like we might read an Agatha Christie Agatha Christie novel uh, or, or Sherlock Holmes novel where it's a whodunit novel where we're reading through the story and we don't know who the killer is or who the bad guy is until we get to later chapters then the, the identity of that person is revealed to us for the first time um, meaning it was previously unknown to us um, maybe it was known to the author, maybe this is a bad analogy and it's falling apart, but the point I'm trying to make is mystery in God's a uh, way of of, of uh, speaking doesn't mean that it didn't exist. Rather, mystery of, is God's way of taking a truth that God knows and hiding it from humanity. But God knows His truth. God reveals it little by little, gradually, right? Like uh, unfolding the mystery just a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, and then until finally, in God's timing, He uh, reveals the mystery in full. This is the type of mystery 
that Paul's describing over and over again in the Bible. Different, there, and there are more than one mystery that we see in, in the Bible. Well, one of those mysteries is the mystery of Christ. One of these mysteries is the mystery of the Gentiles, right? The mystery of what we call the mystery of the gospel. And so these mysteries are all tied into this um, hermeneutic principle that God reveals truths to us gradually or um, in a progressive fashion. I, I have um, a pushback against this idea of God revealing things progressively to us by people who interact with me on my YouTube channel. They tell me, no, God's silence in certain parts of the Bible indicates that God didn't want to tell us, or I'm sorry, it represents um, that it doesn't exist. And I'm saying, no, silence in one part of the Bible doesn't mean that it doesn't exist to God. It just means that God's not revealing it to us. So, the, you know, two cases in point, if, if you'll allow me to digress for a moment. One of the ones that I've been bringing up is that when we read in the earlier parts of the creation account that God creates the heavens and the earth, we don't read anything in there about an agent of God, like the Logos or the eternal word of God or Jesus' name doesn't show up or even the Holy Spirit isn't given credit for creating the heavens and the earth. Moses simply writes that God is the one who's doing it. The Hebrew word is Elohim for God. Or the Greek would be Theos. So in the beginning, we're introduced with the idea that God is the creator. But it's not until later on when we get start reading through the Psalms and the writings and the prophets and they begin to really culminating in the fullness of the apostolic writings that we really understand that the word that God spoke in the creation account where God said, let there be light, God said, let there be uh, animals, God said, let there be trees and things like that. When God spoke, that was actually the word of God as the agent of God, aka the eternal word of God who was with God and was God, who became flesh and dwelt among us in the human being known as Yeshua. Thus, in the apostolic scriptures, the mystery of God is revealed to us. It's unfolded in this progressive fashion that we find out that the word of God that God spoke at the creation account is actually Jesus. But Moses doesn't write it that way. He doesn't write it that way in the creation account. He doesn't say in the beginning, God the Trinity created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the God spoke through the eternal word of God and the agency of God as the Logos of God, as the eternal word of God, created the heavens and the earth along with the Holy Spirit, etc. Et he, doesn't, he doesn't unpack it that way. It's very um, uh, limited in, in our, from our perspective so that we're left with the impression that there isn't any Jesus in the creation story. It's not until we get later on into the, that it seems like Paul and the writers invented and inserted Jesus where he didn't really belong to begin with. So the point I'm trying to bring, bring up is this. When we encounter mysteries in the Bible, we have to actually remember that these are actually truths that did exist even before we understood they existed. In God's perspective, they did exist. So we have the mystery of Christ, the revelation of the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the Gentiles, which is known as the mystery of the gospel. And so it's not necessary to think that these are omissions uh, in reality. They're simply what I'd like to call information limitation. They're, that's that we aren't functioning with the entire picture, but that's just because that's the way God intended for his plan to unfold. And that's proof of the progressive nature of God's revelation. The other good example that I'm not going to highlight right now, but just mention in passing, is the fact that the Messiah's identity is not given up front right at the very beginning in the Torah and the early writings, and not until we start dealing with some of the um, uh, Psalms and the Proverbs and the writings and the prophets and, and later parts of the Tanakh that we start to begin to encounter this um, 
suffering servant who's going to come, this prophet. There, I mean, we're, we have glimpses of them. Don't get me wrong. You know, the prophet that Moses spoke about who's going to come to the people, the angel of the Lord that um, uh, interacts with his, the people of Israel, the um, captain of the Lord's hosts that Joshua sees with sword drawn and things like that. We, we have these glimpses of the pre-incarnate Yeshua very early on. But what my point is, is we don't have the name of Jesus mentioned, right? I mean, like we have in the New Testament where Paul says in the book of Romans, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and uh, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Right? King James Version, uh, I think Romans 10 verses 9 and 10, somewhere around there. Wow, wouldn't it have been inconvenient if Moses wrote that, right? If you confess Israel with your mouth the Lord Jesus and, and believe in your heart that God is going to raise him from the dead after he dies, you know. But we don't have Jesus' name showing up in the Torah. Right, and if we do have the name of Jesus showing up in the Hebrew, like Yeshua or Yeshu or Yeshu or Yahashu or something like that, it's just coincidental that it's the name of another Israelite. It's not the name of the Messiah. But the point is, it's an argument from uh, it's an argument of omission that his name isn't there. God knew the name of His own Son before Jesus even existed, and He knew that He was going to send His Son into the world. Right? This was all preordained before the world began. I've got a verse to prove that if you don't believe me. But this is all done in the mystery of God's uh, progressive revelation. All right, this author continues. The main function or role of the Spirit is to make known the plan of God in Christ. Right? We talked about this economic trinity. The Holy Spirit is not here to push his own agenda. That's why he's not very well are not frequently spoken of in prominent verses and why you don't have like verses in your face that kind of reveal his identity and his personhood. Number one, he's spirit, right? He doesn't have a, um, um, a, a body, right? Flesh and bones body like Jesus. So he's, he's um, uh, what's the word? Um, I'm, draw, I'm drawing a blank. There's an English word I'm trying to think of. Um, but he doesn't have a flesh and blood body. Neither does God either, but God at least is spoken of in anthropomorphisms, and sometimes the Spirit is too, right? Uh, the Spirit is spoken of like a dove descending on Yeshua when he's being baptized, things like that. But for the most part, the Spirit plays this very behind-the-scenes, backseat uh, role of, of, um, of revealing the plan of God and primarily revealing the words and the truths of Yeshua. That's why he's called the Spirit of Truth and things like that. He, the revealed mystery, this author says, um, about the plan of God in Christ and the spiritual role of revealing the Son after his ascension is because no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is the one who allows us to have this um, fellowship with Yeshua, uh, so much so that it's the oneness Pentecostals who believe that the Holy Spirit is actually the Spirit of Jesus and not the Spirit of the Father and not the Holy Spirit himself. Um, at least I believe that's how some oneness Pentecostals interact with uh, the written word. They believe that there's one being and his name is Jesus. It's kind of a modalism perspective that I'm describing here of Trinity. So they do believe in three, uh, Father, Son, Spirit, but there's one being who simply swaps out these disguises or avatars or masks personas um thus the phrase modalism and or modes of god and so when jesus wants to interact with humans since he's transcendent when he wants to take on his eminent role and be up close and personal with human beings 
He either wears a disguise or a mode known as the Father, or a mode or disguise known as the Son, or a mode or disguise known as the Holy Spirit. But in the end, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, the name of this being is Jesus, not the Father, not the Son, not Yahweh, not Theos, not Elohim, or any of those other names that God uses in the Bible. His name is Jesus, and the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. So we have verses, about two or three, in Paul's writings, uh, like in Galatians and in uh, uh, Corinthians, I believe, uh, Colossians or Corinthians, I can't remember, um, that ref- or other places, the Romans may be one of them, that talk about, I'll flash them on the screen and post, um, that talk about um, the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of His Son, something like that. And this would also make sense when Jesus talks about in John 14, 15, and 16 about, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to send the paraclete and then in this way that I will be with you. And so some Unitarian Christians interpret this to mean that the paraclete is actually the alter ego of Jesus. He's not really the Holy Spirit. He's Jesus' alter ego in this way that Jesus has to leave, go back to sit at the Father's right hand in heaven, but the paraclete comes and, comes and swaps places with Jesus, and thus the paraclete is not the Holy Spirit as a third person. Instead, he's either the um, alter ego of Jesus in spirit form, so he's a spirit form of Jesus, or he's simply the personal power of God on some level, something like that. Either way, it's a skewed view of, of, um, the, of what the Bible is really uh, presenting. It's an inaccurate view because it limits God uh, uh, to only a certain set of passages that we kind of cherry pick, even if you're not intentionally doing so. This author reminds us that the main role and function of the Holy Spirit is to make known the plan of God in Christ, and thus the revealed mystery and reveal the Son after His ascension. After His ascension, because uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he continues. Paul shows that the saving work of Jesus Christ is directly related with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and vice versa. Christ offered his atoning sacrifice for the sins of humanity per Romans and applies the merits of this sacrifice by means of his priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, um, recall the book of Hebrews. Nevertheless, this author reminds us, it is the Spirit who makes efficient what the Savior has accomplished per 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so in closing to our study tonight on... Um, 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 on um, my Shema study, discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're going to keep reminding ourselves as we study through the Word of God uh, some things that I remind you and that I remind myself. As we're studying God's identity as has been revealed to us, be sure not to shortchange yourself and um, undercut your own um, Bible study by camping out on one or two passages or play books of the Bible or verses of the Bible. If you find a, a passage of the Bible that um, agrees with your theology, that's good. Write that down, right? Record that, keep that, memorize it, m- you know, meditate on it. That's great. Lock that up into your understanding. Keep it. But at the same time, if you find another passage in another part of the Bible that challenges your way of understanding your theology, you don't have the right to toss that out because that's equally inspired scripture as well. And it's given to challenge you and to stretch you and to help you to grow in your understanding of God. Often, many of the truths of God are held in tension. They're held as paradoxes. 
how God can be both transcendent and imminent at the same time, how God can be both seen and invisible at the same time, how God can be both uh, incorporeal, that's the word I was looking for earlier, like without a body, and yet Jesus has flesh and blood body, body, body that's a tongue twister, flesh and blood body, and yet Jesus is very God. Uh, uh, you know, despite the equivocal, um, ambiguous nature of the phrase God when I say Jesus is God. So, um, do yourself a favor, read through the entire Word of God, and hold verses in tension. You find a verse that says, no one has ever seen God? That's true. You find another verse that says, um, Moses and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Well, that's also true, right? Um, both verses are true. Both, both, both verses are accurate. So, um, we're going to keep um, plugging away at uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in this section, who or what is the Holy Spirit, and we'll pick up next week in the, with this author's commentary here, where we'll keep talking about um, uh, the role and functions of the Holy Spirit. But that'll do it for Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to the liturgy real quick and look at two passages. The first passage is Jeremiah 31, 34. We read the first three verses in this section earlier, 31, 32, and 33. And now let's read the final verse in this particular uh, passage that we've been highlighting. Jeremiah 31, 34, speaking of this new covenant, this Brit Hadashah that God is going to one day make with Israel, but is already available to anyone who names the name of the Lord, particularly names the name of Yeshua as Lord. Jeremiah promises to corporate Israel, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. These are corporate promises that will one day come to pass as Israel surrenders herself into the lordship of Messiah Yeshua as a people. This is still future-facing. It hasn't happened yet. And remember from our Roman study, Paul wants Gentile Christians in Rome, Gentile brothers, to continue to reach out to stumbling, backsliding Israel, to, to unbelieving Israel, national stumbling Israel, with these particular promises. These promises are for Israel, and they need to hear these verses. So continue to reach out to them. What does the Hebrew say on the right side of the page? The Hebrew says, Velo yilamdu od ish et reehu ve'ish et achayv lemor de'u et Adonai ki kulam yedu oti lemiktanam va'ad gdolam ne'um Adonai ki eslak la'anum I'm sorry, la'anovam la Avonam, keep stumbling over that one. La Avonam ulchatatam lo ezkarod, and that'll do it for the liturgy from the Hebrew section. Let's turn quickly to Galatians chapter three and keep reading our section from Galatians that we've been looking at. Um, we'll probably finish with verse fourteen next week, but this week it's Galatians. You know what? I think I'll read both of them. No, I won't read both of them. I'll just I'll stop at verse thirteen. Next week, we'll read the whole section, 10 through uh, 14. Uh, but verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming cursed for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Over on the uh, right side of the page, Paul writes in Greek, Christos humas exigorosen ektes kataras tu namu gignamenas huperhemon katara hati gegraptai epikataratas 
pas hoc renominas epi Cthulhu. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the uh, short little video for tonight. Uh, we'll watch the video, and after the video's over, we'll simply dismiss this prayer. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. And as I'm fond of mentioning, they bring the questions and I bring the answers. And sometimes we actually make sense of one another. Okay, here's our question on the table for tonight. If Hashem is not cleansing unclean animals in Acts chapter 10, then what is he cleansing? How are we to understand the vision that we read about in this particular part of our Bible? All right, let's unpack it. I personally believe that Kifa's interpretation of his own vision is the best and most important interpretation that's offered, namely this. Are you ready? Here it is. What Hashem has designated as kosher that is fit for consumption and treif, not fit for consumption, in the Torah of Moshe concerning food still remains clean, that is to whore, and unclean, that is to may, respectively. Understand what I mean? So, although the sheet contained all manner of animals, like we read about, I believe what Hashem is trying to get Kifa to understand is that the animals represent all manner of peoples, not the literal animals themselves. You understand what I mean by that? Let's talk about that in tonight's study. This interpretation is in accord with the unchangeable nature of Hashem. To be sure, is this not how Kifa interprets the vision himself in verses 28, 34, and 35? Let's turn and actually read those particular verses, all right? Verse 28 says, He said to them, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. So this is Peter's first response to Cornelius. Then Kiva addressed them, I now understand that God does not play favorites. Verse 35 says, But that whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, to God, that is, no matter what people he belongs to. So notice, Peter explains his understanding of the vision and what it truly means to him and to Cornelius and to all of us who are going to be reading this passage later on. So what are our conclusions to this very short video study tonight? Well, let's name them, all right? In the end, considering how the written word of God describes forbidden and permissible foods, and considering the core nature of the gospel as revealed to Abraham, the father of those faithful Jews and Gentiles who are in Messiah, read Romans chapter 4, as well as Galatians chapter 3, to catch the gist of what I'm explaining here, the message of the Acts vision is actually crystal clear. Ready for it? Here it is. Certain forbidden animals of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 are declaratively unclean. The Greek would be akathartos, with the corresponding Hebrew being tamay of akathartos, right? Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 still stand. And thus should not be eaten, these particular animals, they shouldn't be eaten by covenant members. Why? Because Hashem says not to eat them. He declares them off limits to Israel. The Torah never hints at a time 
when such a declaration would be reversed by divine decree or such, such as the traditional understanding of the Acts 10 vision like we hear about in traditional Christianity today. However, those loyal to covenant faithfulness need not worry because the vision was never about food in the first place. It was about people. Understand what I mean? All right. I hope that helps us understand what we're reading. Those Gentiles from the nations that God was bringing into remnant Israel via faith in Yeshua are not intrinsically and thus irredeemably unclean, which would be the Greek akathartos again, like the first century Judaisms were professing. That was the big challenge to them uh, that this vision was being presented. Jews should not avoid them merely because they are Gentiles by birth and remain as Gentiles even after coming to faith in Messiah. That's why Peter needed to be sent this vision to, to understand how God was cleansing the Gentiles in Messiah. They, these Gentiles, like all men, have been created in God's image. And as I mentioned, as such, they should be viewed as defiled, that is, koinos, by the stain of sin, yet in need of cleansing, katharizo, by the blood of Yeshua. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. And uh, I am um, thankful that uh, I've been given this opportunity to um, share with the students. I, I Every week I say these same or similar words that I'm very thankful for the interaction that I can have both with the live students as well as um, those who join me uh, afterwards in YouTube and in uh, iTunes and by way of email and things like that. Lord, continue to raise us up and bless us. None of us has all the answers, which is why we turn to you, which is why we avail ourselves of your precious Holy Spirit to unlock the meaning of the text and to help us to apply it, to help us to turn away from sin and to forgive uh, one another for sinning against us, to help us to practice messianic sympathy towards one another and to love God and love our neighbors, ourselves, which are the two greatest commandments that you highlighted to us. Thank you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit reminds us of the words of the Master, of your very words, Yeshua, and that even though we now have verses that uh, demonstrate us praying to the Holy Spirit, we can be sure that he is very God. Uh, he has all the same attributes as God, even though we don't have any verses that say pray to the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, when we pray to God, we pray to Yeshua. We pray to you, Lord. We pray to the Father, uh, like you've demonstrated that we can pray. And we know that the Holy Spirit is one who is carrying our prayers and even interceding for us between us and the Father when we don't know how to pray as we ought, like Paul told us in Romans chapter 8. So thank you, Lord for the power and the presence of your very Holy Spirit. Continue to raise us up, heal us, strengthen us, and give us clarity of voice. Give us divine um, opportunities to witness to other people around us and share our testimony. Open doors to share the gospel and give us a holy boldness when we're speaking. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen.